Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash portland On this episode of the podcast, we are welcoming Mr. Stuart Hall. Uh, how this kind of came about is Stuart and I were having a discussion on Facebook about ranked choice voting and uh, it was getting a little too deep for Facebook and we were like, hey, you know, why don't we why don't we get out there and, and actually do this on the podcast and so people can listen to our discussion about ranked choice voting and whatever else may come up. So, um Stuart, why don't you just give us a couple couple minutes, a brief bio of who you are, you know, your political involvement. Um, just kind of, yeah, introduce yourself to the to the listeners, viewers. Sure. Thanks for having me, guys. It's fun. Uh, I'm a of course. born I'm a born and bred Oregonian. Uh, I'm grew up on the west side of town, attending Beaverton schools, and uh, went to the University of Oregon, and that was where I got my first political involvement. I worked. Uh, on the Go students, students like, for Bush 88 campaign uh, on the U of O campus. And uh, one for one, not bad. <laughs> we were mildly popular, uh, not really. Uh, University of Oregon at that time, as it still is, was uh, not a bastion of, of Republicans. <laughs> but uh, we did our best to wave the flag and, uh, and hopefully made a difference. Um, I spent some time in college. I took a semester and interned in Senator um, Bob Packwood's office. Uh, upon returning home, um, I ended up working and running a campaign in 1994 for state Senator Tom Hartung. Uh, he was coming out of retirement and wanted his old Senate seat back. And I helped him with that. And my wife, who's the real political pro in the family, she has worked on many more campaigns than I have uh, because of my career in the financial services industry. I've I've had to stay a little bit more in the background than she has, but, uh, is she doing anything right now? She want to hop on the pod? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she might, uh, you might want to have her on your own. Um, you <laughs> right now she's doing a little work for the taxpayers association, but she's worked for many gubernatorial candidates. She worked for George W. Bush, uh, and some of his things. So she's been very active, ran a number of state house campaigns. I was involved in all of those, but she was really the one uh, out front. Uh, so I've been around this kind of thing for a fair amount of time. And uh, um, I've seen Oregon in general just change very much in the type of state we are. And I heard James, uh, as he talked about on the Facebook, he said, you know, how do we get kind of more moderate uh, outcomes in some of our elections and he mentioned ranked choice voting and I had a different opinion on that. So I'll throw it back to you. <laughs> All right. So just a little bit of, of background, I guess. So the Republican Party, the Oregon Republican Party platform actually specifically states that we do not support 
ranked choice voting. Um, this was something that was added in 2018 in Pendleton when I was there. And I thought it was very odd that um, this was something that the Republican Party in Oregon had would explicitly say that, that we don't want. It's being done, I believe Maine is, I think, is the only state that does it for presidents. Uh, there are several other smaller um, smaller races, smaller uh, uh, Alaska political... Just added, Alaska just added a version of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 kind of an experiment that's going on in a lot of different places, and and the basic idea of it is instead of voting for one candidate, you get a list of candidates, and then you rank them based on how you how you like them. So if there's four candidates, you rank them one through four, and so in order to win a ranked choice, you need a full majority. So so fifty percent plus one. So they count all the votes, and if nobody receives a an actual majority, what they do is they eliminate the fourth place person. And so that's all. So all of the first place votes for that fourth person are removed. And now you moved those, the, whoever voted that person number one, now the second choice becomes the, the tally. They, they recount everything and they repeat the process until uh, one candidate has more than 50% of the votes. Um, so the reason that I think it is at least worth considering is that um, what you what you can get a potential outcome is a more moderate candidate. So imagine, I, I, I think that both the Democrats and the Republicans are, are leaning a bit more to the extreme. They're, they're pandering to the, to the extremist members of their respective political parties. And so what you end up with sometimes is very extreme Democrats and very extreme Republicans who I don't believe represent the majority of voters. And so what you can do, but if you vote for a third party, you're kind of throwing your vote away because then you just kind of hand one to the, to the other team. So what you can do is you can vote for a libertarian number one and a Republican number two, if the Republican is more extreme than you'd like. And so you're not really throwing your vote away by voting third party. Dozens so I can IPO see why. Just cringed. <laughs> We're going to hear Sorry, about that one on Twitter. Party. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, independent party. But uh, so what I think that does is over time, the candidates get more moderate because you need to appeal to a larger base. You can't just be an extreme Republican or an extreme Democrat when you're primary and then based on the demographics of your district, just kind of coast through the general election, which is kind of what happens in a lot of districts here. So um, I, at least that's that's the way I kind of viewed it. Uh, so, Stuart, you have a different opinion. Um what go for it <laughs> so we we have some examples of things and where your argument holds some water is where you have um one side with a with a micro with a minority vote that is larger than in a three-party vote i guess the best way to put it uh main was one you mentioned was the best example they were often coming up with results where the republican was actually winning Okay, with much less than 50%, because the Democrat and the independent, they have a much stronger independent um, uh, electorate version there. They have an independent senator, okay, in the, in, in, in the Senate. So in that scenario, well, what, was, what was happening all the time, or what was happening with Paula Page, who was the governor, was he was winning with 40% of the vote because the Democrats and the independents were splitting. 60%. And when they went to rank choice to get rid of, of that, now I, I bring that back to Oregon and I say, is that the case that we have here? Okay. Was, is a majority being thwarted because 
um, one party's getting a minority of votes. And, you know, you can look at different levels of races. If you start with the governor's race and you look at the third party vote in Oregon, uh, on the right, you've got the Constitution Party. You can argue that most of those folks would be voting uh, for the Republican as their number two choice. Probably most of them. OK, libertarian is a really hard one. I mean, that's much more of a 50 50 split. Some libertarians are libertarians because they don't want to uh, have drug laws and things like that. They may vote Democrat as their second vote. Um, some are much more about privacy and maybe some freedom issues or liberty issues. Uh, they may vote Republican, but that's not very clear. The Working Families Party, the Civic Green Party, those are not going to be people who, who pick up Republican. And you add that to the fact that the Democrats have been getting generally just about 50 percent. Yes, they've had some elections where they've gotten for governor 48, 47, but they're just so close to 50. It's really not going to change very much. My thinking is, is uh, what would service a lot better is a top two system to achieve what you're talking about. California has gone to this. Sometimes you end up with a top two in a very liberal democratic district can be a very, very socialist, democratic socialist type um, Democrat, and then a more moderate Democrat. And the Republicans in that district, they might only be 20, 25% or something like that, can then vote for the more moderate, and they've got a choice that at least better reflects their views. I think a great example of that is the, is the mayor's race in Portland that we just had. Now it's nonpartisan, okay? But in a democratic, <laughs> if it was, if it was only, <laughs> if, it, if it was a traditional partisan type race, and you had a regular primary, um, Ted Wheeler did not get fifty percent of the vote, and. Sarah Ayanna Roney, if I pronounce it correctly, uh, probably in a partisan primary would have won. And um, because it was a top so two, because it was a top two, you think top two, what he ended she up with won. was Republicans were able to vote for Ted Wheeler to keep Ayanna Roney out. And that's that's, I think, what you're looking for. If you've got a partisan primary, you'd then be looking at the Democrats in the city of Portland. OK, in this case. Um, are a very, very progressive bunch. And they very much would have might have voted for her in a primary. You would exclude all the independents and exclude all the Republicans would know would not be a part of that. Okay. Much like we do it in every other level of government. Okay. Um, and because of that, then um, she would win and Wheeler would be out. Okay. Right. Or, and then you'd have a Republican candidate. Well, Multnomah County Republican Party is a lot of things, but it's not a moderate force. OK, so you would have ended up with a very extreme Republican candidate, probably against a very extreme, I'll just call it Democratic Socialist, but as a Democrat uh, candidate. Sure. And that doesn't give you through rank choice. That doesn't do that. It's a top two that really type primary that really does that in a much better way, which is what I think you were trying to get to than rank choice. 
And so I honestly, I can speak to that because I, I myself voted for Ted Wheeler in the first round of the mayoral elections and had there been a closed primary, I as a registered Republican would not have had the opportunity to do that. And I feel very comfortable saying Sarah Iannarone would have won that primary if it were only Democrats voting for the Democratic nominee. And I think, uh, Stuart, it's interesting because you mentioned the top two, and that's that's also what the state of Washington does. And it gives a lot of leash to our Congresswoman from the North, Jamie Herrera Butler, she was she was one of 10 uh, members of Congress to vote to impeach President Trump. She's taken a lot of flack from the far right on that. But there's not really a uh, a real chance that she's going to end up losing a, a primary, losing her seat to a, a far right fringy Trump MAGA person. Uh, or at least losing the nomination, because obviously then certainly a, a Democrat would win that seat because Washington is the top two primary, right? Yeah. And Alaska is an interesting case. They do have a strong independent kind of uh, third of their electorate that's um, splits fairly evenly. I mean, Alaska has become much less Republican than people think it is. Um, it, it, it's an interesting place because of the tribes up there and um, the, the divisions that there are. But Lisa Murkowski pushed through a top four with ranked choice voting. <laughs> so four make it through <laughs> and then ranked choice voting, which for her as a, you know, a moderate Republican works because it, top four guarantees she's going to get in. She might lose in a top two between the Democrat and a partisan Republican, but in a top four ranked, rank, so four make it through the primary, just the top four, it's not partisan, just top four. And then you go to the ranked choice voting in in the general, and 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 that might be a way you could combine the two to, to get a little more of what you're talking about. But I think it's probably, again, fairly unnecessary unless you've got a, lot of races that are really a, a bit a good strong independent contingent and you can talk about the independent party of oregon but you know they they've never elected a candidate they've never really been the deciding factor we've gone to where they are allowed to endorse and list on the ballot that they might have endorsed a democrat or republican i don't know about you guys but i haven't seen a lot of movement uh or change when they endorse one way or another and outcomes so that was kind of my my base thing. On that. They're nice very happy to tweet about it, though. Yes, yeah. they are. <laughs> so I, I'm not exactly wedged the idea of ranked choice. I just think that, especially here in Oregon, well, so first of all, I find it absurd that um, a political party that's in the super minority and hasn't won a gubernatorial election in 30 years is crossing things off the list that, that may or may not help us, but at least it... Um, you know, the, the status quo is not working for us. So it, it's, I think that it's good to explore other options. And I think, I don't know, I think you may have won me over, Stuart, as far as the top two rather than um, the ranked choice. I will say it's one of the criticisms I heard of that, and I'm not necessarily that I uh, go with this, but it, it's just something for the sake of argument is that it does kind of take away some of the power of the party. Uh, so if you are in downtown Portland, uh, your top two is going to be two Democrats almost always. And so your Republican Party, instead of being able to put up a candidate, even though that candidate, um, much like myself, uh, would just get blown out of the water, 
uh, they don't even get the opportunity to put up the candidate. Would have saved you time, James. You would have lost in the primary. Save six months of campaigning. Sure, sure, sure. Well, it was COVID, so it was kind of a weird campaign anyway. But but your opponent but, might have been more challenged. Um, true. You know, well, she that. she did have a challenge. I mean, in there were there were four Democrats in that primary, and I guess to your point, there may have been a different outcome if Republicans had been allowed to vote. Although, to be honest, if I had been if I had voted in that primary, um, I would have voted for her for for Dr. Reynolds. Um, Lisa Reynolds, friend of the pod, the most reasonable of the of the four. Yeah. And and I, I said that before the election, like I, she was, I think, far and away the, the best of the four Democrats running for that. So uh, she probably would have won anyway. So bad example. But um, I've heard that. And I think maybe that's the reason why the ORP decided to make a statement against it, because they want control and they want to push the party platform. And this is something that I've another thing I've noticed. You mentioned the multiple Republicans earlier. Uh, very very concerned with the purity of the platform and less so on winning elections, which I think well, I'm going to knock you off the conspiracy theory. Okay. I think, I think they're against ranked choice because they realize the best chance to win as a governor is not where we get 51% as Republicans. Hmm. I think they realize that having some sort of Pacific green party or uh, we saw Al Gore lose that way to George W. Bush uh, because of Pacific Green or the Green Party in Florida or whatever it was back then. I think they realized that in a state where um, Republicans statewide are at a disadvantage to begin with, that we might need a little division in the majority party to get over the line every once in a while. And if you go to ranked choice, you just basically eliminate that. So in some ways, they're being rational Republicans, if they want to win, which is, you know, how do we, you know, we don't want to have a voting system that automatically excludes us from that possibility. So I, I'd actually be point. curious, James, for if if this conversation started, are, are you looking just like just straight up for a way to get more Republicans to win? And you think changing the way we do elections is the way to do that? Or is it you think that there's a either like a fair way to conduct elections or a way to conduct elections so that representatives are more in line with exactly where their district is? Well, it goes back to our um, our tagline for this podcast, State Over Party. I am more concerned with the best person getting into the job rather than the a Republican. And I think that sometimes the best person is a moderate Democrat and they might get knocked off the off the ballot in a um, in a very extreme district. I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> I, I'm hesitant to, to name names, but there is a, a district to the north where um, a very extreme Democrat and a very extreme Republican uh, went out against each other. And um, I probably would have voted for the Democrat uh, because the, the Republican who was in that district was, was just so extreme. Uh, but if you have any other Democrat instead of that Republican, you know, it, it's a no brainer. Um, Anyway, so we didn't really prep for this, but it's kind of along the same lines. I wonder if uh, you have any thoughts on open primaries, if that would be another vehicle to um, uh, to kind of get more moderation, uh, less extreme viewpoints in either the legislature or. I, I am old enough to know or have been around that we tried that in the early 90s, I believe. 
when we did that, it really didn't change very much. Um, most non-affiliated voters are non-affiliated for a reason. Um, you look at the turnout difference in, uh, in primaries versus general elections. Uh, it's not just because they can't vote. A lot of it's because they don't really, it's not interesting to them. Um, and, you know, people have very good reasons why, I guess, they choose or choose not to participate. But, uh, there wasn't much difference in what we saw back then, 90s, uh, mid 90s, uh, over that. I think the top two accomplishes what the open primary idea is trying to do much more efficiently because in the end, we have to pitch this to voters as to why they want to change to a different system. And to me, uh, I think the pitch is with, with the top two type system is that. Uh, we want to give you a vote that matters in the general election. And for a lot of voters, they feel like, you know, I'm, I have no vote. I mean, I'm, I'm, it doesn't matter. And, um, you know, pardon James, but in your district, there's few Republicans who, you know, they voted for you, but in reality, they knew what your chances probably were. And if they'd had a second you know, if they'd had a choice between a more moderate Democrat and the one who won, or maybe she is the more moderate one, even if they voted for her, like you said you would do, they'd probably feel better about and be more excited, feel like their vote mattered more if they were voting for somebody who had a chance. And I think that is something we can talk to voters about and say why why we need to change it. Because the Democrats aren't going to want to change it because it's working for them. So why would they? So and that honestly, that kind of leads into one of the other things that I wanted to, to kind of get your thoughts on on this podcast is we have a way of electing candidates and a way of managing the districts such that there are candidates that represent each district. And I, the, the way Oregon, the way the lines are drawn right now is the lines, the, the person who fits each district has nothing really to do with the the way the actual communities are laid out. We, we are one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. And we were very rapidly approaching the the opportunity for the legislature to do it again. They, it will be the legislature. They just had the Supreme Court case go, go their way. Shamia Fagan cried very bitter tears, I'm sure, on Thursday or Friday, whenever that judgment was handed out. But <laughs> in all likelihood, the legislature is going to do a less bad job at drawing lines than Shamia Fagan would have. But they're still going to draw really rather partisan lines and especially at the federal level where we're going to get another congressional district it's going to go from four to one to five to one what's kind of the way that we as republicans can win i'll start with that one because i disagree with you is that right you think is it four two three three how's it going to look um first of all uh if the legislature passes it they will try and pass something uh if a plug for days redistricting app for anybody who doesn't know what that is, go check it out, Google it. Um, you can draw your own lines. It'll even give you suggested lines. The numbers aren't quite all the way updated yet because even the legislature doesn't have the new numbers. Um, but you can add a sixth congressional district to Oregon and look at a play with drawing those lines. Very, very, very hard for the for, the Democrats are going to have a, a tough choice. Their choice is going to be, do we have four safe districts and one, one safe Republican, one probably safe Republican or leans Republican, and four safe Democratic districts? Or do we try and go 
if, if they go try and go for 5-1, their problem is they could end up 3-3 real quick. Mm-hmm. The distribution of voters and the efficiency uh, for them is bad. Um, there's so many um, of their voters are in the Portland metro area. And if you think about the Portland metro area, the way it's gerrymandered right now, they've got Kurt Schrader's Valley District that snakes up into Gladstone and Milwaukee just to grab enough Democratic voters to tip it over. Um, what you really got in Portland is three districts that are in Portland. It's going to be hard to put a fourth into the Portland metro area. They're, they're really kind of have to have three. And when you do that, you'll look at it and some of it, the district that doesn't change, it probably won't change very much in my estimation okay. is probably Bonamici's district, believe it or not. Um, she might lose part of Multnomah, or Multnomah County part of her district and shove that to Blumenauer. Um, well, Bonamici but, and what, Blumenauer are the, the two bluest, the, uh, the D plus yeah. 14 and D plus 20, roughly. And so, you can, go ahead. No, that, that was it. I was going to say, you, you think they're going to uh, move those around a little bit. Just a little bit. I, I think I, I'll just clean this back up again. I think it's hard to get a fourth district in the Portland metro area, probably even all the way out into including Hood River. You're probably going to wrap up all of that in three districts. Really hard to get a fourth in there. Uh, so then your choice is if you lump Eugene and Corvallis and you're careful there, you can, you can, uh, and Salem, you can work it, but you're probably going to leave two districts that are, that are Republican leaning, if not better, more than that. And, um, uh, without some really wild drawing. And I, and I think the federal courts would have a hard time with really crazy drawings. We just don't have enough Voting Rights Act issues here in Oregon. Uh, you know, and some of these states that have the worst looking lines, they're often able to get away with it, ironically, because of the Voting Rights Act, which were, which allows you to bunch minority voters together. So you get really crazy lines that way. We don't have as much of that in Oregon. So it's harder for them to do that. So I'll start there. I disagree. I think they're going to have a problem with, with the Fed, with the federal lines, um, the state lines. It is outrageous, um, in the law currently. And one of the problems is we never sued, um, either 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, there are something like, it's either, I think it's about 20 house districts that touch Multnomah County might be 18 and they're, and they're okay. due by population about 14. So there's an extra four or five seats that's touching Multnomah County. One of the parameters in the state law already says that you should not cross county and city boundaries. Um, I'm afraid we're just going to have to sue them uh, and, and, and hope we get a good court ruling. And I, I'm hopeful a little bit that the courts, there's the, the Democrats themselves have made such a stink about gerrymandering. I think there's more of a consensus against it uh, than there has been, especially in a state like Oregon, where if you did a fair, ger- a fair redistricting, you're not going to end up with a Republican legislature immediately because you did a fair one. You're probably still going to have, you know, or it's a, it's a, it's may a not have the super majority though. They yeah, you probably you probably lose a supermajority, but you don't get a majority. So you're not threatening one party's power in a way that, you know, is really life threatening. And I think the courts are going to look somewhat askance. I will say on the side, you guys have probably talked about walkouts uh, down in Salem. Um, 
I don't question. think I'd walk out over <laughs> over much except this. If if you ask me one thing to walk out over, and what I would walk out over is the bipartisan group, and I, I know that's overused and often phony, uh, left-leaning groups, really, the League of Women Voters, you know, people who are, are not Republicans by any means, want an independent redistricting committee. And uh, the legislature could refer that out. Uh, the, the, it can't go on the ballot because we came up short on signatures, and that can only go on at a, at a even year general election. So that can't go on this year. Uh, but the legislature could still refer out a ballot measure that that does the exact same thing. And that to me is worth walking out over. I think we'd be on the side of good government. Uh, I think Oregon voters would really like, and if you poll it or talk to anybody, would you rather have politicians doing it or would you rather have an independent commission? I mean, that's about an 80-20, yes, we'd like an independent commission. So if you're going to walk out over things and, and shut shut Salem down, that's the kind of issue where it's 80-20, we look like we're, we're the good guys. And I think I'd die on that hill. Uh, that, that would be, I think, something we could do. When we actually had Norm Terrell, the president of the League of Women Voters, on the show, and we we straight up asked him that. We're like, you're very left-leaning. You understand this is going to cost Democrat seats. And he said, "I yeah, you're absolutely right, but it's the right thing to do. It's a good governance thing, and that's exactly why they're for it. And as a – we've brought this up before, but that this is kind of a good way to bring this up again. This same exact thing happened. They did walk out over redistricting 20 years ago, except back then it was the Democrats who were doing it. They wanted the chance to kick it to the secretary of state. Uh, Bradbury what was the guy's name at the time who this is how we got the very partisan lines that we drew today. Kate Brown, who rails against it, was totally fine when it was her own party doing and trying to get the lines drawn, lines drawn to her favor. They would they would argue by doing that it will go to uh, the secretary of state's office again with with Shamia Fagan writing the lines. But the Democrats appear to the date really don't like that either. She <laughs> she she's a strong. Uh, strong coffee and i'm not sure they're very excited about letting her have control of their fate so i think she's got different incentives as well you know what she's her incentives are the unions you know the unions are paying all her bills and so she's she would draw the lines in a way that maximizes democrats as far as she possibly can whereas i think that uh, at least the legislature they have a bit more interest in keeping their jobs so they might keep things a little bit more fair because they have relationships and they, they want to, you know, they don't want to draw districts where two of them live in the same district. Whereas Fagan, I think, would have no problem doing that. Um, I don't know. I think, but yeah, I, I've, I've heard I think that Fagan's not popular. If the legislature draws the lines, they don't change very much. Um, you know, elected politicians tend to like the voters they have because the voters they have have been voting for them. Yeah. So I think you see small changes, which still, as you said, is a terribly gerrymandered, um, one of the worst in the country. Uh, if if the secretary of state draws the lines, I think it gets really nasty. It gets it gets uber partisan down to every last uh, seat to try and. Uh, favor the right people and punish the wrong people. Some of them will be Democrats. Yeah. Let's, I'd honestly, she's never going to do it, but I'd love to get Tina Kotek on an episode and just be like, what do you like? 
what happens if you guys screw it up and Shamia Fagan ends up drawn? I'd love to hear her thoughts on that, but I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if she listens. Well, I guess maybe that gives the Republicans a little bit more leverage too, because if the Republicans decide to walk out, it does go to go to Shamia Fagan. So maybe yes. there's, you know, you probably don't have a ton of leverage in the process, but um, you know, I don't, and I haven't spoken with uh, Rep Drazen about it, but I mean, I, I'm sure that's something that they've considered uh, going, talking with, with Kotech and saying, Hey, you know, we, this is, we, we want a little bit of influence here or you're gonna, um, or we'll kick it to Fagan and, and she's going to do what she, what she does. I never want to underestimate uh, what secretary of state could do. Uh, because I think she may be capable of more than I can estimate. But uh, what do we? What would Republicans have to lose? We're already in the super minority. What do you have to lose? Uh, and and you're correct that I think Tina Kotek is going to be much more scared of that because if she's the one who's going to lose some of her members, or she has members who are very scared of, of that. And, you know, they might be willing to deal a little bit and make it a little better. They're not going to make it, you know, great, but they might make it a little bit better. But I think we sue, even if no matter what deal, we, if we have to cut a deal, we cut a deal. And we still probably sue uh, and see where that goes. And I think um, I think we also turn around and uh, uh, let's get that, let's get that back on the ballot in 2022. The Supreme Court ruled uh, U.S. Supreme Court ruled. I think in the Texas case, Nick, um, uh, the last go round that you could redistrict mid mid cycle. You know, you don't have to just do it right when the numbers come out. So it can be redone. We can we can put a commission in place uh, and have them come in and, and and redo it. And this is especially so what happens if the courts. What happens if the courts get a hold of it? If we do sue, the courts say, "Yeah, these are gerrymandered." Do they just get kicked back to the to the legislature to redo it, or does someone else is are the courts then responsible for redrawing the lines? Uh, what's what's that next step? You know, yeah. we've never gotten there. Uh, I would have to defer to a legal <laughs> person. I know the courts eventually will draw. The federal courts have almost always drawn our federal districts uh, for Congress. It's almost it's gotten there multiple multiple times, and it's usually they just they just draw it and say this is. This is what you get. Usually what they've done is modified, made very small, as small a changes as they can make, uh, which is why if you look at the map, since Oregon added its fifth congressional district in 1981, 82, I believe, the, the maps don't really look very different. Uh, it, 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 they move lines have moved a bit, but it's because the, the, the federal district court always comes in and goes, okay, we need to move this much and, and we're going to kind of keep it the way it is. Cause they don't want to be accused of, you know, being partisan. They just want to say, this is what I've got. I'll just adjust it a little bit and, and we'll make it. So the one man, one vote is, is satisfied and the other requirements and then they, they move on. So federally, it wouldn't shock me if it's written by the district court. The state, I don't know that the state Supreme Court would really want to write that. I think they would give the legislature uh, some opportunity to modify. Um, you know, most state legislatures are given by the court some opportunity to modify uh, what's gone on and try and get it in compliance. They'll tell them, okay, this doesn't fly. Uh, I'll use my criteria. Multnomah County is, rep is overrepresented by too many seats. It can only have this many. Fix it. And then they'll just fix that part. Uh, that would be my suspicion. 
Got it. So I'll shameless plug for the state of Texas. There's a great book called Lines in the Sand about how we had to redistrict in 2003 after our own state senators fled to New Mexico. And I, I say we I'm in Texas right now, which listeners is why I'm talking on this instead of my um, my normal microphone and viewers why I'm covered in a slight glistening sweat because it's like 85 degrees outside. and I'm not used to this as an Oregonian. But uh, this also I think it, it it's also worth mentioning that there was a lot of drive and there was a lot of momentum behind the IP57, the petition to get uh, a nonpartisan commission to draw the lines in Oregon. And we actually we got the reprieve because we hadn't collected the signature. I say we I say we as in people who are sane and want not politicians to draw the lines. So we actually get fair lines. Um Coronavirus stopped that in its tracks. We got the extension and Ellen Rosenblum, for some reason, went to the Supreme Court and said, no, we don't want to do this anymore. And Elena Kagan said, yeah, that's fine. You guys can go ahead. And this is why we don't have nonpartisan redistricting right now, which I think is an egregious miscarriage of justice. But I do think, uh, Stuart, to your point, there's a great opportunity to get it back on the ballot. And there is precedent for mid-decadal redistricting. And if that's what it takes in Oregon, we need to go ahead and get that done. Yeah. So I guess I'm I'm kind of on this is one issue where I feel like it's we don't have a lot to lose. Sometimes you have the most power when you have the least in some issues because you have nothing left to lose. Yeah. And it's it's we're, we're going to be on the side of the voters uh, all the way through where we look like we are the rational ones and okay. we are the ones pushing for good government and they're the ones looking partisan. I mean, nationally, to hear the Democrats go on for 10 years about all the redistricting and how terrible and racist and awful it is. And then Ellen Rosenblum and Elena, and Elena Kagan, a Democratic-appointed Supreme Court justice, basically come right in and say, oh, no, 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 not in a state that's our way. It's fine and, in Oregon. Right. So, you know, it just shows they're all politicians. And they, they are going to do what makes it work best for them. And... We've got to, people want to step in and fix that problem. Yeah. We were listening. I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan podcast recently and he had on Dan, Dan Crenshaw, uh, another Texan. And uh, one of the things he said that I thought was really interesting, his, his perception, he says the, the, the Republican party is paranoid. The conservative or the democratic party is power hungry. That's how he characterizes the two. And that seems very accurate based on uh, my perception of, of things. Anyway, we are running about out of time. So uh, Stuart, one of the things we'd like to do before we let our guests go is uh, ask us a question. Uh, who is your favorite Republican, if you have one? Probably typical for somebody of my age who's 54 years old. Uh, I was 14 years old on election night in 1980 when uh, as the late uh, great Rush Limbaugh called him Rinaldus Magnus uh, was elected. Uh, and uh, if you remember in that election, it was a big, you probably don't, you guys too young. Uh, if you've heard about it, it was a big stink because uh, it was the, the networks called the race uh, before the West Coast polls had even closed. Uh, if you watch TV now and there's elections, obviously national, you know, they'll wait and they won't call it and they kind of hold it off because they don't want, because what happened in 1980 was people literally were in line to vote on the 
West Coast and heard Reagan won, they all they all just left and didn't vote, uh, which of course affected a bunch of local races. Uh, so, uh, but uh, he 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 grabbed me, uh, he got me uh, supply side economics. That's why I majored in economics in college in the late eighties. Uh, it was a uh, for those of us who. Uh, you try and unwrap, you know, your youth and and things, and and so so much of uh, the '80s was was a lot of fun and a great time. And uh, to me, he's always intertwined with that. I turned uh, turned 18 on election day uh, in uh, in uh, 1984, so I was able to cast my first vote for president for him. Which, side note, just for fun, because uh, you asked for fun stories. Uh, I had to have a note for my mother to go vote for the president of the United States. Uh, I was a high school football player, so I had football practice after practice and after school. So I needed to go vote at lunchtime. And we had a uh, principal who uh, was cracking down on everybody not being allowed to leave campus. And they had to have notes from their parents or they would get detention and so forth. So um, uh, we didn't have vote by mail then. And I had to leave at lunch to go vote. And I had to have a note from my mother to go do it, uh, which I pointed out to the principal. And even he finally had a, had a laugh about that, realized that was kind of ridiculous. But uh, if you were voting for Carter, would she have let you go? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it has to be Ronald Reagan. And uh, it was a uh, great president, great time, and really captured my imagination. Perfect. Uh-oh. Jimbo, looks like we lost your audio there. I guess this is a good time. Yeah, maybe you <laughs> muted yourself. Well, in any case, Stuart, thank you very much for coming on with us. This is definitely a uh, definitely a solid episode. Hopefully every, everybody learned a lot. And uh, listeners, viewers, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.